Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Haywood. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Tanya Hickett. Tanya is an experienced professional futurist. She has extensive experience in applying future studies to development issues in the emerging world, but also with a solid track record in business strategy. Tanya has an MBA specialising in strategy and forecasting and a master's in future studies from Stellenbosch University. In addition to running Hickett and Associates, she is lecturer at Stellenbosch University Center for Complex Systems in Transitions. She also serves on the board of the Association of Professional Futurists and also serves as a director of the South African node of the Millennium Project, where she co-founded the Foresight for Development platform. Tanya has spent most of her career either in or working with the private sector but her passion is expanding and building the practical application of future studies on the African continent. Tanya is based near Cape Town, South Africa. Welcome to FuturePod, Tanya. Thank you, Peter. I'm delighted to be part of this. It's such a stunning initiative. Thanks very much. Tanya, question one for our guests is their story of how they found themselves in a member of the Futures and Foresight community. So what is Tanya's story? Um, mine is mine's very contextual and situational. And then I guess there's a, there's a bit of personality, my personality mixed in there. And the contextual situational bit, Peter, is completely around um, being a South African and coming of age in the middle 1980s when um, South Africa was in a very, very bad place. I mean, we were literally on the verge of a civil war. Yeah. And I'm a, I'm a white South African. So I, I was lucky. I, I grew up in a sort of a more multicultural. My father was a German immigrant. I grew up in a slightly more open household, despite having survived, you know, white Afrikanerdom schooling and all sorts. But I knew instinctively the future had to be different because of the apartheid system that we were in. And, and we were at the time, it was incredible uncertainty, volatility, and to a large degree, it still is. It's baked into the situation where, where we live every day and the diversity as well. So I kind of, I think I came pre-primed because of that situation and, and went off to university, nearly immediately became a student activist and became very involved with, with the, the politics of the day. <laughs> And some of that actually hasn't left me. So I, I really do walk around <laughs> with um, um, a little backpack, mm -hmm. a psychological backpack, saying the future has to be different. It can be better. <laughs> so after that, and then, of course, what happened in, in those transition years in, in South Africa is the future did turn out to be really, really different. And, and we did. We had a whole lot of, as a nation, deep introspection about whose futures and, and hearing the voice of the deep injustices and hearing the unheard voices through the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and 
it was ultimately a negotiated settlement. It was a conversation. Mm. You know, it wasn't there was a winner here and a loser there. And, and we, that extreme pluralism that we have in South Africa just came to the fore in a very sort of visceral way. I was just of an age and of a time where I felt very much part of it. And so on the one hand, that on the other, it's interesting, South Africa actually has a really rich tradition of futures and foresight work. And one of them is the Institute for Futures Research, which is, which is where I I studied as well that that started off when South African businessmen were exposed to the Club of Rome work, said we need that here and, and, and put some money forward to start doing that sort of research here. That's Stellenbosch University. So I've been exposed to that from, from an early age. And then Pierre Weck, when he stopped working at, at Shell, became a consultant. And his first consulting job was for a mining company in South Africa, Anglo-American, which was faced by the sort of extreme uncertainty in its operating environment. And a set of scenarios came came out of that. And and there's a very famous story about the sort of Anglo-executives. And one of them, I went to work for Anglo-American right after finishing my study. So again, you know, I was really lucky. I had early exposure to that type of thinking. And there was a whole lot of sort of systems thinking, systems change work happening in, in the organization. These were business people trying to deal yeah. with the extreme uncertainty in their contextual environment. And there's a famous story. The guy who, who later became my mentor who, and who I worked with for a while had made a presentation to Pierwack um, and sort of listing all the, the assets and the liabilities of the business and the country and blah, blah. And, and, and as he said, he says, it is clear that South Africa needs a political transformation. And Piwak kind of sat back and he said, hmm, yes, and an economic transformation and a social transformation. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that executive, Clem Santer, was so taken by the scenario's work that, that he went on his own and just sort of toured through all of upper echelon white society at the time with scenarios saying there's a high road and a low road. People, you know, started conversations about the implications of taking the low road in South Africa. Depending on who you talk to, some people say those scenarios helped switch minds and got white people to, to re-perceive that the future could be completely different. Did the Montfleur scenarios occur? They came, they came a little bit later. They came, this was sort of before the political transition. So this is late 80s that Ken Stunter and Pierwack was doing that scenarios work inside the organization. I was yeah. still a student then. Um, and then we went into the early 90s, which is when I started working at Anglo-American. The early 90s is, yep. is precisely 1992. The ANC was unbanned. The Montfleur scenarios took place then, and, and they're equally famous. And I know Adam Gordon has just published a new paper kind of re-looking them in the method, and they're utterly fascinating, Peter. But yeah, they also, they had a huge, huge impact. So there's that kind of rich tradition and as I said at the beginning, you know, we are constantly, it's in your face, surrounded by deep uncertainty, extreme volatility, ambiguity on steroids, and loads and loads of complexity. Yeah. So um, that button's always on for, for us as South Africans. And to be honest, I think it makes for a very vibrant, exciting, stunning futures foresight working environment. So I, I adore living and working here and on the continent. Well, certainly the Montfleur scenarios were always a pivotal teaching point in our master's course, you know, as a particular paradigm, but, an, but also as an exemplar of that type of scenario, one that is obviously highly narrative 
but also one that changes how people think and talk about the future. Yes, it it is. And um, and what's interesting, because in scenarios literature, and and especially the more classical kind of work, everything would be centered around check out that contextual environment, you know, the big forces of change that are happening. And then within those, there would be um, different scenarios, different choices, different decision points, etc. What's interesting about Montfleur, and this is what Adam Gordon's written up so nicely recently, is, is Montfleur actually went into scenarios, using scenarios and saying, well, how do we actually change those big driving forces in terms of the decisions and the choices we make? And, and you know, they were, they were popularized. This is the days before social media and cell phones and everything. But everybody knew about them. It was quite stunning at the time. And what's interesting is that was the second time around for us, because the first time around was that set of scenarios that, that came out of um, Anglo-American and, and Penn Sunter, which was the high road and the low road, that also that entered daily language saying, you know, we can take a, a high road or we can take a low road. And um, so, no, so in, in, a, in a sense, I, I was lucky. Um, futures foresight thinking, knowing the future had to be different because of our apartheid regime that had to change. And, and then being surrounded at, a, at an impressionable age. I, you know, I was, this is a long time ago. I was young and, and impressionable. It was great. But anyway, to cut through the rest of it, I, I went on. I started off with a business career at that Anglo-American company. Uh, was deeply unhappy in the mines. It was awful. <laughs> went back down to Cape Town um, and, and started working for a South African oil company, which was what was left of mobile because they had pulled out of the country due to sanctions. So this was a South African oil company and they were very strong on corporate social responsibility. And I had a stunning job, which I love, which was getting this large, huge organization to do business and contract with small emerging businesses. And it was sort of a very inspiring time. It was the Mandela years. And, you know, everybody was sort of, pulling shoulder to the wheel, trying to build a better society. Um, and with business being business, of course, that didn't last terribly long, but it was wonderful while it happened. I just had wonderful career eventually doing business analysis work. Oh, you know what happened, Peter? I got promoted. I had to do investor relations work and started talking to people about, amongst other the numbers. And I was completely uneducated in that because at school, History was my favorite subject, but I never carried on doing it because my parents had expectations that I should have a profession, you know, become a become a doctor or a or, or something like that. So I had maths and science and biology and but I never did any accountancy or finance or anything like that. <laughs> and all of a sudden I had to do numbers work. So I trotted off and to, to, to do an MBA. And the strangest thing happened. I really utterly adored and was very good, it was bizarre, at operations research, statistics and statistical forecasting. And because I was a poet in the class, there was a whole lot of white engineering guys that saw the writing on the wall in terms of their fancy jobs that they had with government um, institutions. And they all trotted off to do MBAs and those were my classmates and I had a stunning time. But I was one of the poets because I'd studied economics and political science and philosophy. Um, but I ended up really enjoying literally operations research and, and, and statistical forecasting work. And, and I had the opportunity to apply that in the business environment and loved it. I, I really had 
I had great jobs. I was lucky, Peter, really, <laughs> right through um, becoming a futures foresight person. I was lucky. I was in the right place at the right time with the right kind of exposure. And then I went on to become a strategic planning manager. And this was with a, with a different organization. I've, I've worked with some very uncool sectors. And when I became a strategic planning manager, I finally had the opportunity to say, well, you know, we're, we're strategic planning like mad, but the world outside there is changing a hell of a lot faster than we are. What do we do then? And then I started bringing firstly scenario planning, but then more methods and, and approaches into the organization. And I was essentially an in-house futures foresight person. And again, luck, I had the opportunity to do that um, working. This was an international company. Then I started working overseas. I was based in London and, and literally worked all over the world. So by the time that contract came to an end, it, it was kind of a natural decision to go back to South Africa and start up a consulting firm. And again, I've been lucky. I've, I've always had really nice, good, interesting work and, and great clients. And Peter, I guess I shouldn't be talking too long, but... What happened after that is I just enrolled into the MPhil in future studies that we have here at Stellenbosch University. And again, was lucky I had Philip Spies as a, as a teacher, yeah. and, and he was tough and relentless. I don't know whether you know Philip. He's, he's retired in the meantime. But he had us reading all the classics, lots of Richard Slaughter, lots of Sahel Inyatuna, lots of Jim Data. I had a great education in, in terms of, of future studies. Thanks, Tanya. So let's move on to question two. This is the one where I invite the guests to speak about a concept or a method or a framework that is central to their work. So what do you want to talk about? Okay, um, every, I suppose everybody loves some methods and approaches and tools more than others. And I do have one that I particularly love, which is Three Horizons Framework. And I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit later. But I have to hedge my bets up front or my choices, Peter, to say that I always work in a structured and disciplined way, which is guided by, well, it's Joe Boris's generic foresight process. Because it's a kind of, I use it as a, as a kind of a template to make sure that one works rigorously and, and comprehensively. Using that enables you to choose tools and methods depending on why it is someone or who, you know, who's doing what foresight, how, for whom, why. It's, it's that kind of thing. So use and purpose and who the client or what the context is determines what tools and methods one would use. So in, in that sense, I never, ever trot out the same thing. I, I did when I started out. You know, I was kind of did lots and lots of scenario planning work in a specific way. But, but that's changed dramatically over the years. So because we have this wonderful array of tools, and, and Wendy Schultz is just wonderful in terms of also encouraging the mashup and mix of tools and approaches. I always concentrate very strongly on what's needed and who is it and what is the context and work it from there. Just before you run off onto Three Horizons, um, which I know you do want to talk about, but could you maybe for the, uh, for the listeners just take a particular situation? Here was the brief and so here's how we applied the generic foresight and how we chose the tools. 
Okay. Um, I had the opportunity to work with Lego earlier this year, the, you know, the, the plastic brick people. They were very insistent on wanting to work collaboratively and they themselves learning how to do foresight and be more strategic using the longer term. Um, and, and that it, it needed, they needed to build that capacity within the organization. So I, I used Joe's framework um, just to, to scope out that in the input phase, that horizon scanning and they themselves figuring out what the best horizon scanning system would be for them would be the first phase of this. Yeah. In the prospection phase, um, because they're Lego, they, it's, I mean, it's an amazing company to, to work for. They're already very creative. They're very, very design-oriented. They're very out there already. We would do scenarios, but using the Manoa method and Joe's cone, yep. um, look at preposterous futures specifically and tell, tell preposterous stories. And then from those, work back through an ideation phase. And then in terms of the output phase, um, no such thing as presentations to the management board or whatever. <laughs> a complete immersive, deep experiential phase. So, so yeah. I'll just check something. So when you say you're using the cone and you're using Manoa, so you were doing preposterous growth, preposterous collapse, preposterous transformation and preposterous. Oh gosh, Peter, no, sorry. We have to just take two steps back. Um, Manoa, Wendy Schultz's Manoa method, not Jim Data's Manoa generic futures, no. Wendy Schultz's Manoa method is where you pick um, weak signals or something emergent uh, and, yep. and mix them up, sort of have different weak signals or trends, combine them, build futures wheels, out, 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 into the nth degree kind of thing, looking at implications, consequences, clash these together, and then see use that as a sort of a... a a framework for scenario skeletons and then build stories on that. It's Wendy's sort of inductive Manoa method. You know, it's um, the, the best, one of the best places Wendy's Manoa method is written up is in the a, uh, the APF methods compass newsletter, the methods anthology that, that Andrew Curry put together. It's written up beautifully there. We, we did that with Lego. Yep. Do you want to go on and, and explain three horizons? Yes. I just love working with it. <laughs> No, again, I've got, I've got to go back to my roots, you know, on the African continent, again, we're lucky because working on the African continent, a much richer oral narrative tradition, you know, we don't, we don't have all that codified knowledge and mountains of research um, and, and people feel very comfortable, you know, cause a layered analysis, we're very comfortable talking about myth and metaphor and, and telling stories and you never ever have to encourage people to role play or to embody different personas that all sort of bubbles bubbles up quite naturally <laughs> so using three horizons is is fantastic and i always add a little bit i start a little to the left of the x-axis by a y-axis by saying you know there's, there's this history we have these multiple histories as well feeding into essentially three horizons that are all present at the same time the first one which is usually the sort of dominant system the third one, which is something completely different, and I often get people to imagine a preferred future as the third horizon, and then look for what are the little pockets of the future in the present, 
um, what are the weak signals of a completely different narrative and get people to plot this out and also say, well, what is it from our legacy systems that are good that we would like to keep and then get people to spend the majority of the time talking about the second horizon, which is that transition phase. And it so quickly gets people into systems thinking, systems change, transition mode of essentially having a good conversation, because often that's the point of, of the work. They're already thinking in multiple time frames about multiple emerging futures. Correct, and even unbeknowingly, using a kind of a systems lens as well. Because remember, often First Horizon represents a very tightly locked-in system, you know. And and then and people get asked, well, you know, what, what would it take to change that? And and you know, if the transition space is happening, what are some of those inflection points? And and that gets people thinking about, you know, where are the? And I often don't use systems language. I'll say, well, you know. Where's the, the vicious circle keeping this thing in place? <laughs> and people, and I work with lots and lots of different kinds of people. So even where people aren't terribly literate or terribly sophisticated or terribly educated or whatever, have stunning conversations. Good. Okay, let's roll on to the third question. And this is the one where I talk to citizen, citizen Tanya about what, what are the futures as they're emerging that are getting your attention? You choose the context, you choose the time frame, but this is the thing of the future that the futures that you are paying attention to as they emerge. Oh, this is the killer question, Peter, isn't it? Because I was going to hedge my bets again and say, well, you know, it depends who you're asking and, you know, which future, et cetera, et cetera. But, okay, if you're asking Tanya, again, it's contextual for me. I live on the African continent, and but I, I, I work in the Western world a lot. So I'm very, very conscious of, I see a very strongly kind of dystopian narrative and dystopian thing emerging. But from where I'm sitting, people are actually hopeful and optimistic and young people on the African continent don't share that sort of doom and gloom that one sees on, on Sky News the whole time. <laughs> things, are, things are actually very, very vibrant. And so, th so there is a different worldview. Having said that, I'm deeply, deeply worried about, and, and this is some of the forecasting stuff. Um, you know, forecasting is good for a very short period of time. So, you know, we, we kind of have an idea, you can forecast GDP for two, three years. And, and then the other forecasting that's really good is in 50 years time, we do have a really good yeah. idea of what the climate yeah. models and things are telling us and, you know, the limits to growth and, and that kind of thing. I, I think there's a, there's a fair amount of, of I, I hesitate to say certainty, but, but we know things aren't looking good. And I think you see it all over now with the, the rise of, of populism and, and all sorts of things emerging. Things are messy heading into the next 30 years. But I think it deeply depends on who you are, what your worldview is, where you come from, how you see these things. So I am on a more hopeful continent. But having said that, you know, some of the, some of the longer term trends here don't look too hot either. But, and then the big but, 
we have less entrenched systems. We, we're not as institutionally locked down. And I, I truly believe that, that innovation, working differently, thinking differently, doing differently, is going to come from the messy edges somehow, somewhere from my continent or, or some other place yep. where, where we don't have this entrenched way of thinking that this is how the world works and it's all going to doom and gloom. I know this sounds all a bit fluffy. I'm hoping it doesn't sound too fluffy. No, I don't, I don't think it does. I mean, I think that the way I'd say, Tanya, is that as a student of history, which, of course, you are, if, if countries in the West, if, if the developed West have, have actually made mistakes and are continuing to make mistakes, then it's beholden on places like the African continent to learn from those mistakes and not make them themselves. Yeah, I wish we'd be a bit better at the learning. We tend not to, and uh, <laughs> and there's often a, there's often a narrative of leapfrogging, but there really are exciting alternatives, completely, utterly different ways of working. And I guess, and at the same time, I mean, it was so funny. You know, I work a lot with with the concept of the Anthropocene at Centre for Complex Systems in Transition. We we use the Anthropocene as a framework for looking yep. at the future. And I mean, the the Anthropocene is going to be really very, very difficult to, to deal with. We, our human beings have never you know, encountered something like this. And a lot of the work that we've done is around how, how can you have a good Anthropocene? And then, of course, being where we are, how can you have human development and good lives as well? And it's an incredibly difficult question. But when you start searching for little different things and how they, how they could work, it, it becomes a really exciting sort of way of thinking yeah i choose to i consciously choose to to look for emergent different ways of thinking different ways of doing different ways of being human on planet earth and and as i said i'm i'm lucky i'm in an environment where where a lot of that is is more more evident it's not because you know we don't have that huge ecological footprint yet I mean, it's that silly thing that North America uses more electricity just for air conditioning than all of the African continent uses in its yeah. entirety. I'm, I'm hoping we have enough time. <laughs> yeah. Can you perhaps um, talk, talk to the listeners about some of those um, emergent things that you are noticing on the continent that gives you hope? Yeah, and, and you know, I'll, I'll point listeners to papers that we've written, and there's a lovely little website on this, et cetera, which are, which are called Bright Spots and, and Seeds of a Good Anthropocene. So that's www.goodanthropocenes.net, where we collected, um, there's a whole database of these little seeds, and they've been categorized, so, so they're all over, they're ways of thinking differently. Knowledge Pele, which, which is an organization that does renewable energy projects in the middle of nowhere, but that just goes in and together with the community, before any infrastructure or whatever goes up, decides what the benefits and implications of this project would be for the community and spends an inordinate amount of time doing what we call a lekotla, which is everybody, absolutely everybody gets together. Um, it takes forever, <laughs> but um, sits down and, and talks through what, what this has to mean and how it can change and how it can change for the good and, and sort of really unpicking and, and finding out, well, if, if this represents some kind of agency, 
what would that be and what does it need to lead to? And Knowledge Pele, um, and, and then up goes the solar farm or the wind turbines or the whatevers in the middle of nowhere. Um, and, and Knowledge Pele as an organization just, just does this most amazing, stunning work going way, 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 way beyond what anybody would consider to be good corporate practice or, or something. And it's a completely different way of, of doing business. Um, so Knowledge Pele, for example, would be one of our seeds. And then there's a tiny little organization um, on the slopes of Table Mountain where some very rich people have some very fancy mansions, etc. And there's an old dis uh, abandoned sort of army barracks. People that have had nothing and nowhere to go and no jobs just kind of pulled in there, squatted, but then started a little permaculture garden. And this has taken off to, to the extent that there's this wonderful organic fruit and vegetable and produce being produced illegally right next door to the fancy mansions. And of course, people living in fancy mansions prefer to buy those kind of fruits and vegetables rather than the ones that come plastic wrapped <laughs> full of pesticides. So, you know, it's, it's those examples that we've taken. Um, and then technology. Technology, of course, is, is a huge thing as well. Is that if you, and so what we did is we worked with these seeds, a whole range of them, clashed them together, got people, artists and scientists and everybody together to, to imagine what these seeds would look like in their mature condition. If these seeds were mature, and that's the way the world worked, what would that look like? And, and people sort of produced scenarios. And, and we, we, we stuck technology into the mix yeah. as well artificial intelligence and genetic modification and that kind of thing. And it gives you a completely different view of the world that, that is hopeful, that is saying, you know, this is, these are some of the ways that we could cope in, in the Anthropocene. Thanks, Daniel. Question four is, how do you explain to people what you do when they don't really understand what it is you do? For people around me, it's usually quite easy. But depending on who the audience is, I sometimes explain that futures and foresight and thinking about the future comes quite naturally, intuitively to us as human beings. And and I get people to imagine, you know, caveman and cavewoman and caveman's job would be to go out and kill an antelope. But what would happen if they didn't catch the antelope? Or, you know, what would happen if the saber-toothed tiger was stalking caveman while caveman was out stalking the antelope? And why it's so necessary that cavewoman had to go out and collect the berries? And, and so just get people to to realize that it's a completely natural thing to think about the future, different futures, contingencies on the one hand, and also major change. Because, you know, if, if there was a felt fire and all the animals left, caveman and cavewoman had, would have to pack up and, and find a completely new place to go to. And, and that we're constantly being confronted as human beings by, of course, the nature of the change now is completely different. Plus, we have felt fires. I get people to imagine that it's, it's something we do anyway. But that if we start working with the future to help us take better decisions and make better choices in the present, it just becomes a more structured, participative process. And then other, other kinds of people, I, I quite like the, 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 the analogy of the flashlight, you know, or, or headlights, a set of headlights if you're driving in the dark. 
um, and you're driving fast, you, you need your headlights need to shine brighter and wider and, and then start talking about the futures cone. And, and I love the example. Um, I'm not sure it could be Marie Conway. I'm not sure. Use the example of Apollo 11 to explain, you know, that this was preposterous, depending on how far you go into history. It was a preposterous future. But then it became a plausible and, and a possible one and, and a preferred one when John F. Kennedy made his speech. And then eventually it happened and it's history now. So I, I tend to use those kind of examples um, and then just, just dive in. So, I mean, I'm, I'm going to, you said in your, in your introduction that in South Africa, certainly there is a, um, people are familiar and find it quite easy to talk about how do we create a better future. Um, and so that, you know, futures and foresight, if you like, has very fertile ground. But what are the, what are the communication challenges that you face even, even with that fertile ground? If people understand foresight and uh, the need for it, I'm going to assume that it's still not straightforward to get people's commitment to actually change. Yeah, I guess, oh, Peter, the big, I think the big challenge is just that, that wave, and it really is a wave. I'm going to get into trouble if I call it the American dream, aren't I? It's that, you know, it, it, it is just nonstop. It's everywhere. It's permeated everything. That there is a route to quick riches. There's a route to, to instant happiness. There is a, you know, what you consume and what you signal in terms of your, your products and way of living, etc. is it's a wave. It's a tsunami. In, in one kind of way, dehumanizes people. And I am going to get into trouble now. I'm sounding dramatic. And in another way, it takes focus away from really that kind of deeper thought and deeper narrative we can and should be having about what kind of lives do we want to lead in, in our spot in the world together with one another. The easy life, the quick answers, the silver bullets is the biggest challenge to, to, to getting people. Yeah, if you have enough conversations about future foresight, its implications, where we've come from, where we're heading, and what that means and the, the implications of that and, and then the choices, how it informs the choices and the decisions we make. Yeah, it's a bit, it's, a, it's horizon two on steroids, isn't it? It's, it's that messy place where, where these things are tapping it out. I get I often find myself, it's, it's not that we wish for things to get tough. And any person who studied limits to growth knows that when you, when you overshoot, it is not nice. But there is a part of me that certainly believes that at the point where the overshoot starts to happen, these nice ideas about the dream future um, are going to have to be renegotiated. Yeah, and... <clears throat> Absolutely. And, and that's why I love working with the colleagues that I have at CST, um, because, because we use complexity, Anthropocene, tipping points, resilience are, are the kind of the intellectual framing of, of what we work with. And it eventually then starts becoming a conversation of what does it mean to be human? How do it becomes deep and, and you can still have a good life, but just often if you really dig into these things, dramatically different from the one that we're having now. Yeah. Thanks, Tanya. 
last question is the one where the guest gets to talk about something that they're passionate about. And you are, you have said what you're passionate about, expanding and building the practical application of future studies on the African continent. So do you want to talk to listeners a bit about that? Yes, I, I kind of alluded to it um, when I said, you know, we, we are so lucky. We have this incredible diversity. It's such a natural sort of fertile breeding ground for, for coming up with alternative futures, different ways of living that, that are not the recipes and the Western world and, and all that kind of thing. And, and there's some amazing practitioners on the, on the continent. But having said that, there certainly aren't any foundations that dish out money to do this work and to communicate it. And we're all kind of living on a shoestring and, and doing things because we love doing it. So where there are pockets of people doing futures work and, and engaging their communities and their intellectuals um, yeah. and their businesses, it's just superb to have to share work with these people and to find out who's doing what. And there's some stunning work happening on the continent. And so my passion is, is just, you know, how do we get that more to the fore? How do we get more of that kind of work done? How do we better connect these people? How do we get kind of better funding for this work to be done? And in that sense, a colleague, Keshi Karuri Sebina, and I had got a little bit of money from the Rockefeller Foundation. We started something called Foresight for Development. And, and it's a platform that's got lovely sort of little tweets and it's on Facebook and it sends out a monthly newsletter um, and it posts LinkedIn stuff. And, and FFD collects the work of African futures and foresight people. It's, it's got a little section called Bibliozone and each month has a different topic. So that, that work is being collected. It's, it's got a con collection of futures thinkers. So there's a very low hurdle to, to be a futures thinker, but it connects futures thinkers on, on the African continent. And, and I just think it's doing such a superb job. It, it runs on a shoestring and goodwill and, and oxygen. So if, if you know any wonderful people that would be interested in giving us a little bit of funding to carry on doing that work, it's that kind of work that, that I adore. And, and it, it goes back again to, I think, preferred futures and different ways of living going into the next 30 years, which is your difficult question that you ask. I think hopeful examples or ways of being and living are going to come from the messy edges, from, from the periphery. Um, and, and the African continent is, is one of those amazing messy edges. Yes, out of Africa again. Yeah. <laughs> a humanity came out of Africa once upon a time. Yeah. Perhaps the ideas about a new humanity uh, come out of Africa. Oh, I love that thought, yeah. I might wrap it here, Tanya. So thank you very much for taking time out to uh, share your story and insights and passion with the FuturePod community. It's been a great pleasure. And Peter, thank you and your colleagues for, for putting this endeavor together. I, it's, I think it's, it's such a stunning, and I feel guilty. I haven't signed up yet. I should sign up as a, as a subscriber, <laughs> as a supporter. But no, I think, I think it's, been, it's been an absolute pleasure and privilege. Thank you so much. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. 
We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now. <laughs>